Okay, hello everyone. We're doing something a little bit special. I recorded this episode with Katarina in January, actually, and and now we're kind of doing this little catch-up in the beginning of August. And the reason why we decided to do kind of a brief chat to start this episode is because, unfortunately, as many of you all know, uh, Zoltan Dornier passed away this year, June 10th. And because we recorded this episode about you know six months before that, and I had some brief conversations over email with uh, Zoltan, we just wanted to kind of have a, have a brief catch up and um, kind of just touch base. So from from my perspective, I actually saw Zoltan give a talk online, and when was that? That was July second of two thousand twenty one, the Tokyo chapter of, of Jout. And that was a great talk. And um, within that talk, he was giving a talk called Long-Term Motivational Persistence in Language Learning. And during that talk, uh, he mentioned these books that were coming out. And he was really excited about it. And there was a Q&A. And I actually got in the Q&A and I asked him about it. And he seemed really excited about it. And um, I sent him an email that day. And I, I asked him if he'd be willing to come on the podcast. And he said, well, touch base you know, later on because we're still finishing up on it. And then I touched base with him in December, and then he um, he kind of forwarded over to you, Katerina. So I kind of wanted to pass it over to you. And of course, we, we had a great conversation, which people will hear after this, um, but just kind of to connect the dots um, from from maybe then and until now or anything you'd like to say about it. Yeah. So um, I think in July 2021, we were sort of just getting um, just getting around to sort of I'm not, I'm not, don't particularly remember all of the details, but we're just getting around to really getting into, um, our data and getting excited about writing and already starting writing, I think. And, um, and then I think in October, around October, he got some bad news about his health. Um, and so then kind of post that he was taking a lot of steps back from, um, from work, obviously. Um, but you know, he was still, he was so excited about this project that we're going to talk to you about in this podcast that, you know, I would get emails from him from the hospital being like, Oh, I came out of this procedure that, you know, went very well. Um, and also I'm still so excited about this project and like, how is this going? And, you know, and I kept telling him like, why don't, don't send emails from the hospital, like take, (laughs) take rest. And, you know, but, but this, this project meant so much to him, you know, he, he used to call it his heart project. Um, one of one of his last emails to me, he said that it was one of the most exciting projects um, that he that he'd worked on. Um, so I guess it was a very big shock when he did pass away. Um, and you know, I just wanted to reflect a little bit on how privileged I w- I feel to have known him. Um, I mean, I only met him in 2019, um, so it's been you know it was a short three years, but. Um, during that time, you know, you just, and I talked about it in the podcast as well, you know, you just find out what a magnetic and lovely personality he had. And we felt, you know, we really found this after he passed away, there was such an outpouring of community from, you know, researchers all around the world, um, of people who had been touched through his research or who had been touched personally. And, you know, the number of people who the, the amount of impact he had on individuals, like, emotionally um and socially was so was so big mm-hmm. that you can't it's it's well beyond kind of you know what what you might say his impact factor is or you know how 
what his research was. And that's, that's saying a lot. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, you know, you, you, you would get, I would get emails about, um, someone who had sent him an email and, you know, he had responded and that email had then sort of rocketed that person off into this, this whole career and lifelong trajectory of, um, of positivity, you know, and, um, that, and, you know, that person then attributed all of that to that, that one email from Zoltan. And so being able to work with him for the last three years was, such a privilege and you know it was especially when the lockdown hit <laughs> we were we were also kind of MA students and um I had to teach him how to use zoom <laughs> which was definitely a very very fun um but you know during that time he'd be like oh you know I've been going on walks with my family like how have you been and he would laugh at my north facing apartment windows with no garden um <laughs> But, you know, during I think during all of 2020 and 2021, he was, you know, the person that I had probably had the most contact with aside from my partner at home, just by warrant of how many meetings we had about this project and how um, how much it kept, I think, both of us going. Um, So I guess I'm thankful to have been able to help him out with this last project um, and I just, I hope that other people find it as exciting as we do, as he did. Yeah. What a, what a horrible, what a horrible loss to the field. Um, but on the bright side, you know, I look at your picture and I, I see, you know, you're a PhD candidate at Nottingham and, um, and hopefully, you know, through you yourself and his other PhD students and the people that he's contacted, um, they'll carry on, you know, the next generation of, of researchers, which is what, what, there is probably no better compliment than to influence the next generation of researchers, right? Yeah. And he's left us with such a wealth of ideas and future directions as well. I mean, there's his innovations and challenges book that came out was it last year um, or maybe the year before that, that, you know, has all of these ideas that, you know, you, you just know that he was going to work on next. And so, you know, it's uh, it's on to us to, to carry the torch. Um, well, yeah, we wanted to keep this brief, but, uh, sort of just a quick catch up and, um, we wanted to put this on the front of the podcast. Uh, we hope, uh, everyone enjoys the podcast and of course, check out those, those two books. Uh, the links are in the show notes. So, uh, without further ado, here's, uh, here's the podcast. Thanks, Katarina. Thank you. Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Katarina Menzelopoulos, a PhD candidate in the School of English, Center for Research in Applied Linguistics at Nottingham University. Katerina, thank you so much for coming on Lost in Citations. And thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And I apologize about the, the time mix-up. I don't, I don't think there was a time change, except for maybe in my brain. That's not really working correctly. So uh, that was my That's fault. All, blame daylight savings. <laughs> I, I think I've talked to a few people from London and maybe I just had it in my mind that I always talk to them at a certain time, which is which is very odd. Um, but anyway, we worked it out. Thank you so much for coordinating this recording. What, what's going on? At, it's January right now. Uh, this episode will be released a little bit later. Are you in between terms or something? What's what's your schedule like yeah. right now? We're we're right in between terms. I think classes are supposed to start up next week. So, kind of the calm before the storm. <laughs> That's right. one way. 
All right, so the book that we are discussing today, this hasn't been released yet. Um, so we're going to try to time the release you know, in the next couple months. Um, the name of the book is Lessons from Exceptional Language Learners Who Have Achieved Native-Like Proficiency, Motivation, Cognition, and Identity. And I see that your co-author is, is sort of a new up-and-coming uh, author. I haven't heard of this guy. Dornier? Is he, is he something special? <laughs> Oh, I don't know. Uh, you tell me. <laughs> so when when is the book coming out? Um, so it should be out uh, later this year. We're still currently in the production and review process. So uh, I don't have a publication date at the minute, uh, but hopefully it will definitely be out before 2023. Awesome. So there's a lot to discuss in the book, but as I'd like to do, it, it's nice to learn about our guests' background. So as far back as you'd like to go... Um, maybe you can take us up into the point where you started thinking about writing this book. Right. Okay. Um, so I guess to start at the beginning, um, I was born and raised in Texas, but um, my mom is Indian, born in Uganda, and my dad is was Greek. Wait. All right. So, hold on. One second. One second. Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Can you say that one more time? Uh, so uh, I was born and raised in Texas. You were born my- and raised in Texas. Okay. Yes. Uh, my mom is Indian, but born in Uganda. So Indian as in she 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 was, her as parents in, are Indian. Yes. But she was born in Africa. Yes. Okay. And then they moved to uh, England uh, because of the dictator Idi Amin. Who, oh. oh. Yeah. Oh. And oh. then uh, my dad was Greek. Uh, they met in, in London. And so then... I don't know how they ended up in Texas, but they did. And uh, out of all of those exciting places, I uh, was born and raised in Dallas, Texas, unfortunately. <laughs> well, I heard I, I've never been to Dallas, but I heard it's a cool city. No, uh, Austin is the cool one. Dallas is just suburbs, sprawling suburbs. Oh, OK, so I'm guessing this this influenced your interest in multilingualism. Yes, exactly that. Um, so, you know, growing up, I my parents didn't teach me either of their languages because this is kind of, you know, at a time when people thought, oh, well, if we teach kids different languages, they'll get confused and they'll be behind in school. And so unfortunately, you know, I'm, uh, I was born a, and raised a monolingual English speaker, <laughs> ironically. Did you, did you show interest in learning their language? Um... You know, it wasn't, I think, well, so my dad used to send me to Greek school uh, when I was a kid, but uh, for a lot of different reasons, uh, you know, things to do with my schedules didn't line up. So they made me repeat a year, even though I was like top of the class or something. So I I was, I always kind of hated Greek school, but I was always really interested in learning languages. Um, So in high school, I, you know, went to a different, I went to like a magnet school kind of thing just for the, which was math and science related, but just for the sake of the fact that they allowed me to take two languages at the same time um, as an elective. Which languages did you take? Uh, At the time, it was Japanese and Spanish, I think. Yeah, for for people that don't know, I mean, I don't know if it's changed, but when I was growing up in Virginia... I think there was only one school in the state that taught Japanese. I, I don't know what it's like in Texas, but it, some of these languages are pretty rare in the in the public school system, at least. Is it true in Texas as well? 
Uh, it's definitely true. But so the public school system that I went to was actually quite good. So they actually had uh, they had Spanish, Mandarin, German, French. Wow. I think Latin. Um, you were only allowed to take one. I persuaded them to let me take two. So at that time, it was Spanish and Mandarin. Uh, but I really wanted to learn Japanese, so then I switched to this other school uh, for the last two years of my high school. Wait, what did you say that you you were top of your class, but your parents made you take the the, the school? You're talking about a, a language class, or they made you do the whole year again? Uh, it was so this was like a side kind of thing that the Greek church provided. So it, it wasn't like a full school year. It was just the Greek class. Oh, uh, so okay. We do the same year of the Greek class again and then you know all the other kids were like wow this chick is so dumb she uh, <laughs> had to repeat a year of like greek school for five-year-olds like how stupid can you be and i was sitting there you know bored out of my wits <laughs> why do you, back- why do you think he he had you do that just to make sure you knew the fundamentals no it was it was literally just a scheduling conflict so oh, my brother okay. uh, was also in greek school and his next year was on a monday and mine would have been on a tuesday and he didn't want to drive twice, so I got the short end of the stick. <laughs> this seems like a a bit of reverse psychology because you know I'm living in Japan. You know I I'm American. My my wife's Japanese, so of course you know she's she's half, and uh, I, I, it's really important that she keeps her English level, and it, it's always a battle. Um, you know, before COVID, you know the best way is just to take her home. For a month, that's I always found that's the, absolutely the best way for all the motivation, all all the all the stuff that you need. Um, but now it's kind of a battle, and um, so I don't know. Maybe I should do the other thing where I just stop caring about her English, and then maybe it, it'll do what you do. You seem to I don't know about Greek so much because he made you take the course again, but the other languages you seem really interested in. Well, I think it's also kind of the case of. Uh, it, being and I think maybe your daughter might experience this as well, but kind of being a very much an other um, in a lot of like cultural and like appearance wise ways as well. Right. So, mm. you know, growing up in suburb of Texas, to be fair, the school I went to was very diverse, but I was, you know, the only one of me. <laughs> uh, but what about what about your mom in this story? Um, so growing up, she how many languages did she speak? Uh, so just Gujarati and English, although she studied French in school, I think. Okay, so what what what's the name of the language? Is that the language from Africa? Uh, no, no, it's uh, from. There's a state in India called Gujarat, and okay. the language they speak there is Gujarati. Okay, so when she was living in Africa, she didn't live they, there very long. Uh, no, she was 13 when they were uh, when they had to flee. So what language did she speak as a kid? So she spoke Gujarati as a kid, and then when she moved to, uh, you know, maybe a little bit of Swahili, but like I think most of their community and school ah. and everything Gujarati at that time. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, and then she learned English when she moved to uh, to London. Wow, wow, my my head's well. This this book is is a perfect project for you to work on. That's for sure. <laughs> but all right, we'll get to that. All right, so you're in high school and you're studying Japanese. Spanish. You're still studying Greek at that point? Uh, no, no. My father passed away and the Greek school lessons stopped. Oh, no. <laughs> Are you so you're but you're again, we're jumping around a bit. You're in Europe now. Are you interested in studying Greek now that you're in Europe? 
Um, so I actually, in my undergrad, I studied abroad in Greece, um, in Athens, because I wanted to, you know, touch touch up with my roots and you know, learn a bit of Greek and stuff. And so my Greek was much better then. Um, but uh, <laughs> at the moment, it, it was very funny because I, I was visiting my uncle and he was like, why are you studying Greek? And I was like, well, because I can, you know, talk to you guys better. And they're like, we all speak English like very well, like there's no, there's no need for this. Why don't you go learn something useful? Wow. <laughs> Which is very funny. He's a very pragmatic person. Um, but, uh, you know, in the end, I, right now, I, my main focus is actually on Italian because my partner is Italian and not all of his family, uh, you know, speaks uh, languages other than Italian. So I thought, you know, maybe this would be the best, uh, <laughs> best uh, investment of time. Wow. Okay. So, all right. So you're in high school, uh, you're studying Mandarin, Spanish, and Japanese. Yeah. I also studied abroad in Korea. I, I know this is ridiculous, but I spent a uh, summer in Korea learning Korean as well. So basically long story short, I was interested in languages. My brother sent me this, uh, there's like a North American computational linguistics Olympiad, which is like a competition full of a bunch of, uh, like language based logic puzzles. Uh -huh. And this is the first time I'd heard of anything about linguistics. I was very excited, uh, entered the competition, did terribly, but that was kind of when I decided, okay, I'll go to under, uh, to do my BA in linguistics. Where did, where did uh, you do that? at the University of Chicago. So um, that was a wonderful experience. I have, you know, very good things to say about UChicago's uh, program, except for the fact that I thought that, you know, oh, I'm going to study linguistics, I'll learn about language learning, and, you know, all these cool things about how to learn a language, and it's going to be great, and second language acquisition. And then uh, <laughs> I, as a, you know, little 17-year-old, I didn't quite know what I was, how to look for a program or anything. And it turns out that UChicago's program is very much theoretical linguistics. <laughs> What's that? Um, so it's very much, you know, think about like syntax trees or morphology or maybe historical linguistics, how languages developed over time. But there was at the time that I went, there was nothing in uh, second language acquisition. <laughs> oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, I thought, well, this is all very nice. It's fun to talk about at a party, but it's not something I want to do. And at that point, I was like, well, academia is not for me. This is, <laughs> I will never do this. And, uh, you know, kind of looking for what else to do. Right. All right. Well, let's go back. Can we just go back and say the Korea thing? What, what, yeah. what spurred that on? Uh, this is going to sound kind of stupid, but so the uh, the U.S., uh, State Department, I think, offers uh, this program for high schoolers uh, called NSLIY. I don't remember what it stands for, mm -hmm. um, but they they fund you to go to a country of a language that's not often studied in the U.S., um, mm -hmm. like we were talking about earlier. So, um, And you can go there, I think, either for the summer or for a full year or for a gap year after your high school. Um, and they give you classes and it's, you know, just a overall really wonderful experience. And I really wanted to go to Japan, uh, cause I'd been studying Japanese and, right. uh, they didn't have a program in Japan. So, uh, off to Korea, I went because I thought, well, close enough. It's, you know, it, it's not Japanese, it's a different culture. And, but, you know, I was, I thought it was interesting. It was very different to, uh, Texas or, you know, any kind of European, European experience I'd had. So. I thought it would be fun and interesting, and and it was. <laughs> you spent the summer there. Yeah, eight weeks. And uh, who took care of you, or like who who looked after you? Uh, I stayed with a host family. Okay. Um, 
we were it was a it was a whole cohort of uh, students for the summer one. So we all kind of went to this. Yeah, uh, they had us. They gave us private uh, Korean language classes at like a local university, hmm. and we all kind of hung out and explored the city. You know, had had a you know developed some great relationships with our host families, and yeah. Ah uh, man, Korean uh, influence in pop culture is just kind of crazy to me. Like just yeah. thinking about in the, in the last five years. I mean, do do you think about was it? I'm a little bit bitter because, you, <laughs> you know, missed it a little bit. <laughs> no, well, when I was in, you know, high school and middle school and whatever, and interested in, you know, all these East Asian influences and watching, you know, Taiwanese dramas and Korean dramas and whatever else, uh, you know, everyone was like, oh, wow, like that's kind of weird. Why would you do that? Like, why would you listen to K pop? It's that's so weird. And, you know, kind of ostracized, not quite ostracized for it, but, you know, it was something you, you didn't really talk about with people because they would think you were weird. And now, you know, you have BTS and everyone's like, oh, yes, you know, K-pop, it's amazing. And, you know, I don't want to be that person who's like, oh, I, you know, I listened to this before it was No, cool, you should. You should be. I you, <laughs> I absolutely, you absolutely. Was... <laughs> because when I was growing up, I felt, I don't know, maybe not in high school, but in college, I knew people watching Dragon Ball Z. And I was mm. aware of Japan's influence in pop culture, definitely more so than any other country in Asia. But yeah. it's it's it seems to be shifting considerably, even in Japan. You know, when I look when I go to Japanese Netflix, Netflix, the top ten shows in Japan. You know, they they give you that you know stat, the top ten shows in a particular country. They're mm. all Korean shows. So even <laughs> Korean and, and Japanese pop culture is just taken off. It's it's crazy. Yeah. It's nice, too, because now that, you know, it's become more mainstream, it's one is a lot more accessible. And two, you have, you know, you don't have this stigma of like, oh, the only people who watch Korean or Japanese things are like, you know, strange little nerds who hide away in their caves and never come out. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, normal. And I always thought, you know, their their TV shows, everyone in, you know, in those countries, like watches them or listens to this music. It can't be that weird <laughs> if their entire country's population is you know consuming this media so why would it be weird if you listen to it from another country but no yeah. you're you're ahead of the curve you should definitely put your stake in that rub, i'll put it on my cv <laughs> <laughs> rub it in people's faces so in in high school how many years of japanese did you take uh in the end i actually ended up only taking one <laughs> okay so one year of japanese in high school eight weeks in korea I guess yeah. the assumption would be your Korean was better than your Japanese after that summer or no? Uh, I think my functional Korean was better. Like I could, you know, go to a restaurant and order, you know, ask for directions and things like that. But maybe my grammatical uh, Japanese was better. Like my foundation for Japanese was better. So then in college, you're not really taking a lot of language classes or are you? No. So uh, we were required to take, I think, two years of a non-Indo-European language. Um, so I continued with Japanese, but okay. I didn't really have, well, we, I, to be fair, I did have time. I would have had time to take other ones if I, uh, if I'd wanted to, but there were so many other options for mod for classes at UChicago that, you know, I ended up taking a bunch of other random, very unrelated uh, subjects. How, uh, and then I was Greek. How difficult were the classes there? Um, because that's a really good school for people that maybe don't know. I never found them difficult 
person uh, do you mean the japanese classes or classes in general just in general like just on your point that you know there it could have been a question of time based on how difficult all of the classes you were taking you know cumulatively were i i didn't know if that was the case or not right uh i actually i don't know i mean it was uh definitely challenging in that you you know you were definitely growing your mind i think they taught a lot of really really important skills that i wish they taught at more universities um but uh i i think that there definitely would have been time if i'd wanted to make time <laughs> for mm. it yeah but you, uh, mean, you, you have a social life and you know other things as well yeah, yeah. they had a lot of really great courses. I mean, I took a creative writing course on wizards. Uh, I like wow. learned about Falcon folktale, you know, like really unrelated things, but stuff that I think is, you know, really interesting and, you know, grows my kind of knowledge of how the world works. Um, so, very always. so this is the part I'm really interested in. So you're reaching this kind of cross crossroads, right? Where you're thinking, oh, I don't want to be in academia and I don't really know what I'm going to do. So around you know your third or fourth year of college what are you what are you thinking about doing uh so i actually had worked for the university of chicago press um in their manuscript editing department wow and um i thought you know maybe i'll go into publishing i really wanted to go into uh trade publishing you know ideally fantasy and fiction kind of stuff and uh it's really unfortunate but there's no on there's no paid internships and they're all in new york Mm. And uh, little little me could not afford to to either even get a flat in New York and and stay there, nor work, you know, unpaid for the whole time. So I ended up uh, getting quite delusioned about that. Uh, didn't really know what to do post undergrad. And uh, my Japanese teacher was like, "Hey, have you looked into the JET program? You're great at Japanese. It could be like a good option for you while you think about what you want to do." And I was like, well, you know, I, I guess I have been learning Japanese. Uh, I wasn't quite as like gung ho about it as I had been in high school. Mm. Um, but I thought, well, I wanted to get out of Texas and I wanted to go as far away as possible. And Japan seemed like a pretty far away place. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's where I went. Wow. So, oh, small world. So I'm, I actually, um, I live in Fukuoka, Japan. Where, where, in, where in Japan did they send you on the jet program? Incidentally, I, I had asked for like a, a suburban area in like near Kansai area. And then I ended up getting placed in the middle of Tokyo. <laughs> okay. So how, how many, how many years did you stay in Japan? I only stayed for two in the end. Yeah. I mean, that's similar. I, I came to Japan, not for the jet program, but you know, teaching English and I stayed for about a year and a half and yeah. that was, that was plenty. I mean, the, um, the culture shock, you know, I'm sure you went through it, the ups and downs. And I think that's kind of common. A lot of people, maybe they come back at some point. Um, but I was definitely ready to leave at about a year and a half. So after the two years, where, where did you go next? Um, so I met my partner there, um, who is, uh, Italian. Okay. And so he came back to Italy halfway through and, uh, we thought, well, where in the world could we live? And, you know, could we actually live without, you know, violating someone's visa or whatever? <laughs> and uh, thankfully, if, uh, because of my parents, I have British citizenship. So, uh, and at the time, uh, the UK was part of the EU. So he found a job in Nottingham and uh, I thought, oh, all right, I'll, I'll move to Nottingham. I uh, don't know what I'll do there, but I was kind of interested in teaching. So I moved there. 
found a position at a local school um, doing kind of uh, behavioral work. And uh, the rest is kind of history, you know. Wow. So you, you came to Nottingham uh, because your partner got a job there, not because Dornier was there? Yeah, that's that's exactly. It's it's really crazy how how these things work out. Um, that's particularly and, crazy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's in uh, he's in the other end of academia in STEM in engineering, and so I was kind of hearing all this stuff about like the academic life and you know reading papers and writing them and you know teaching and all usually complaints about them. Um, <laughs> sure. <laughs> but, <laughs> Maybe it's worth a second go. And uh, my partner sent me the the MA in Applied Linguistics at Nottingham. He's like, well, why don't you look into this? It sounds like you didn't you do your undergrad in linguistics. And I thought, no, 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 I don't I don't want to do linguistics. It's not applicable to anything in real life. Like, I, you know, I'd never even I didn't actually know that, like, applied linguistics existed at the time, which sounds kind of stupid because it's it's very, you know, you think about it and you're like, well, obviously there must be you know, second mm-hmm. language acquisition, like research, but I didn't think about it. Um, and so I saw that I was like, Oh, you know, maybe, maybe it's worth a second go. I, I got to ask you something. I got to go back real quick. Did you ever take the JLPT for people that don't know? That's like the Japanese language proficiency test. Did you ever take that test and find out no, like what your level is? I, I didn't. I thought, you know, I got to Japan. I really liked it, but I think for a lot of reasons, I didn't think that living there long term would be an option for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of that was kind of the death of my motivation for Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's well, good. You know, that's good very to know. Outside of Japan, and uh, you know, I, I could never see myself fitting fitting in there. Being being from like so many different places, and kind of that being not the case very often in Japan. I, I didn't really feel like being a black sheep for the rest of my life. I mean, you kind of nailed it. I mean, for Japan is really amazing. It's an amazing place, but it's not, it's not diverse at all. No, it's not, it's not <laughs> multicultural at all. So the thing about, you know, living in Japan, it's, there's so many things that are so wonderful, but sometimes you just want to get out. And then when you get out sometimes, Oh, I miss it. So it's just very specific. It's a very specific kind of frequency. Um, but as far as I, diversity, it's not, it's not really that. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, no, I, I never ended up taking the JLPT. I'm just curious how good your Japanese is. That's it's always quite cool. Um, I'm very good at, uh, exp- I'm, I can. I would say I could probably ex- express anything that I wanted to express, wow. but I would sound like a four-year-old while doing it, and very rude. Uh, most likely, very rude. Uh, I've been trying to fix that about it, but uh, it's uh, yeah. Okay, so you enter the program at Nottingham. So how how was that? I actually don't know much about the M- the MA program. I've talked to a few of Dornier's um, PhD students. In previous yeah. episodes, but I don't know much about the the, the MA program. How was that? Uh, it was very good. It's um, you know, they it, it was a nice kind of space to sit and think. Well, what do I want to do? Because I went into it thinking, well, I've done a bit of computer science. Maybe I'll do corpus linguistics and you know, vocabulary acquisition. And at the time, Norbert Schmidt uh, was supposed to be there, but he'd retired exactly that year. Mm. Uh, and he's kind of an expert in vocabulary, right? 
Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and so it was actually very uh, auspicious in a way, because then I thought, well, what else is there at this program? And I met Zoltan, who did the, um, he taught like the kind of quantitative and qualitative research methods course that everyone had to take. Mm. Um, and at the end of that, he said, well, I know you're planning on taking this corpus linguistics class, but I think you should drop it. And I think you should come to my motivation and group dynamics class. Wow. <laughs> and at the start, I thought, oh, like maybe, I, I don't know, like motivation, group dynamics, like, mm. um, but then I went to the first week of both of them. And I don't know if you've ever met Zoltan, but he's no, such a dynamic and magnetic personality that I thought this class is going to be, I'm sure, I don't remember who was teaching corpus linguistics. They were very nice. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, you meet Zoltan and you think, okay, I get, yeah, this, this seems like a good investment of time. So I, I took motivation class and, uh, that was kind of history that, you know, that was. And then, and then, so now are we at the timing where you started to think about writing the book or not quite? Uh, no. So the, the idea for the book actually came from Zoltan. So, um, that summer I did my, uh, MA thesis in, um, the motivation to learn multiple languages, mm. unsurpri perhaps unsurprisingly, <laughs> I took a narrative approach, uh, to doing so. Um, and so then, uh, Zoltan had read my, my, my thesis and he, and I did that with Christine Muir actually, who you've also interviewed. Yes. Um, yeah, she's lovely. Um, and so then, uh, I think that, that autumn, uh, he was, it was the pandemic had hit and he was teaching, I think an, an undergraduate class in bilingualism or something. And, mm -hmm. uh, for one of the, one of the tasks for that class was that he had everyone, um, he had like a, an online bulletin board called Padlet. And he said, okay, well, we're learning about first and second language acquisition. And we know that there's this critical period hypothesis and adults don't tend to learn languages to the extent that, that children do. Mm -hmm. um, and so then he said, okay, well, go out and see if you can find any adults who have learned a language to the extent that a, that a child has so that, you know, so they sound native like and, uh, you know, write their stories here and maybe present a picture of them. Mm. And, you know, he, he assigned the, the, he did the assignment with the ex expectation that not much would come of it. Um, but it turned out that so many people actually did respond and they had, you know, all these different, really, really diverse and interesting stories. And he thought, well, this, uh, we can't just ignore this, this, um, this idea, you know, that there are people who actually have learned a language to such an extent that they could be mistaken for a native speaker. Um, and so then, you know, what, what do we do with this? And, uh, he, he kind of, he approached me and he said, Hey, you know, I know you're applying for a PhD. Cause I was at the time I was also applying for a PhD for a PhD under him. And so he thought, well, while, while you're doing your, uh, <laughs> your PhD application, uh, why don't you also, why don't we also work on this? You know, what do you think of this project? So we kind of explored what we would do with it. And, uh, that's kind of the, the birth story of, of our two little books. Wow. Okay. So let me just give you the context of how I came to hear about this book. So um, the Tokyo chapter of JALT, so for people that don't know, JALT is the Japanese Association of Language Teaching. It's a very big organization. They do a lot of good things and lots of different chapters. And I, I guess they had invited uh, Zoltan to give a talk. Um, and by the way, you know, a lot of people c complained about the COVID era. I mean, for me, 
as far as, you know, academia or, you know, learning, it's been amazing because the amount of presentations I've been able to go to, you know, as opposed to before, just because everything's online is insane. It's just, it's just, I can't even, I can't even quantify. So I, I don't think I ever would have been able to see, I don't know how often Zoltan did online lectures before this, but I wasn't really aware of it so much. Um, but anyway, he gave this lecture called Long-Term Motivational Persistence in Language Learning. Mm -hmm. This was July of last year. And so, uh, of course, there's so many people. And um, at, so, at, at some point during the presentation, he sort of – he mentioned this book. He said something about this book and he seemed – there was sort of like a, a, a I don't know, glean in his – is that is that the right word? Glean? Yeah, glean. <laughs> um, and so uh, – and then I asked – you know, you could put questions in the chat, right? And so I was like, oh, this is my, ch this is my chance to ask a question. So I asked him a question about the book. And a lot of times, you know, you're going, you have all these people asking questions and, you know, you take, you just kind of give like a very short answer. You move on to the next question, but he spent about five or six minutes talking about this book. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, whoa, he's really excited about this. And so then I, I reached out to him. Um, I think the, the same day. So oh, it'd, be, it'd be great, you know, later on down the road, if you, you'd like to do a podcast about it. And then, um, and then he directed uh, me to you and that's how it kind of happened. So recording this podcast has kind of been in the work since last July. Um, I've been, I've been thinking about this book and he seemed super, super excited about it. So I guess, first of all, the book that we're talking about today, lessons from exceptional language learners who have achieved native like proficiency, motivation, cognition, cognition, and identity. Now you said there's, there's a second book, uh, that, that is going with this book. Can you explain the two different books and the functions yes. of them? So originally the book was supposed to be one book. Um, it was going to be lessons from uh, native, uh, et cetera. It's a very long title. Um, okay. And then it was going to have an appendix with all of the stories that we collected because the idea behind the book is that we would go, we'd collect the stories, the language learning stories of, of these people who had achieved this, um, this, this degree of proficiency. And, um, you know, then we'd have all these beautiful stories that people could then look back to and refer back to as a corpus, either for their own research or also, you know, just to, to bolster their own motivation and inspiration for their language learning. Um, and so then we started writing them. And as part of the data collection process, we kind of condensed a bunch of interviews into these kind of short stories. And I realized that we had, uh, I think it was at the time, 60,000 words of like just the basic stories or no, it must've been 50,000 words of just the basic stories with, with a lot of really interesting details kind of taken out, mm. you know, it's kind of, they did this, 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 and that, and this is where they are now. And we thought, well, this isn't going to fit in, in a single book. <laughs> So we approached Multilingual Matters, our, our publishers, and we said, hey, what do you guys think of having this as, as a second book, as a companion volume? Um, we could have the first one kind of directed towards um, researchers who want to, to see what kinds of things we can learn, you know, future research directions. And we can have the second one, which they can also refer to, but which also, you know, maybe teachers or students or language learners could, could read. And it's, a, it's, it's essentially a storybook proper. Hmm. So what's the name of the second book? Um, it's, uh, <laughs> this is, uh, I've, I've been caught. It's, 
So <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's, we've changed it so many different times. So it's stories from exceptional language learners who have achieved native-like proficiency. Okay, so it's kind of a companion. It's exactly a companion, yeah. I see. Okay. Um, all right, great. All right, so let's let's start getting into... All right, so you have this idea, and how do you go about you know, the data collection. Um, what, did, what was your strategy for actually conducting the interviews? Because I've, I'm working on a project uh, now and I was very careful about how I structured the interviews so I could code the data later. So I just, can you kind of walk me through what was your process of thinking about the interviews and, you know, scheduling the interviews, but then also did you have in mind how you were going to code the data at the end or to, to sort of take us through that process? Right, right. Um, so for my MA thesis, I'd done something very similar. I uh, so Phil Hiver did uh, wrote a paper on um, narrative. Uh, he wrote, I think, two or three, um, but in one of them, he used this uh, language learning story instrument um, that had kind of tell me about your story, and then it asked for like ups and downs, um, like highs and lows, and etc. And so I had done that for my for my MA thesis, and I thought this seems a little bit too complex considering we wanted to take a very, uh, a very light, I think, uh, step for the, for the data analysis. Mm. So instead of kind of doing that, we thought, okay, why don't we just take the bare bones of the story from kind of start to finish? What was your story? And then we had a few things that we thought might, after reading into a, a lot of literature, we had a few things that we thought might be relevant or just kind of interesting. Um, so we had, we asked them for their story and kind of tried to minimize any sort of uh, directional um, interference there. And then at the end, we had a little checklist, if they, which if they hadn't already asked about it or talked about it, then we would ask them. So things like uh, musical talent or, um, yeah. <laughs> so, all right, here's the thing. The, the way you did it is the best way, but it's also very difficult as far as analyzing, I would say, I don't know, that would, that would be my assumption. Is that, am I wrong? Uh, no, you're not wrong. It's, uh, you definitely, it, it took a lot of time, um, to kind of go back and read, especially because we had 30 of them, mm. um, and each of the interviews, I think we'd planned for them to be about 45 minutes to an hour. And, you know, one of them went on for, I think three and a half hours, Wow. Or something. He's oh, he's lovely. Uh, it's Colin, but <laughs> it was you know we just kept talking, and then we looked down and like oh my goodness, it's been so long. And then I thought oh no, I'm going to have to transcribe all of this <laughs> and then analyze it. So you know the the analysis did take a, a very good amount of time. Um, and as part of that, so we kind of did a, an initial. It, it it involved a lot of different rounds of coding as well. So we had some initial rounds of coding, kind of looking at things, and then we developed the the stories, condensed stories, um, also as part of those, and then went back again. We actually one of our um, one of our participants, Capucine, is an undergraduate student at Nottingham, and we we brought her on board for because she's also doing creative writing, um, mm. and so we. Well, she might have, uh, it might be some like useful experience for her to, if she wants to have a look at the stories and, you know, kind of help edit them. And then we thought, well, well while she's read all the stories, maybe she can help us with kind of organizing our, our table of contents. So she was there for a couple of meetings of that as well. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I, of- because in, in the email you sent, you know, you were, we were kind of 
going back and forth talking about the episode and I gave you like sort of the way I view the podcast, right? About sort of an, or, let's have an organic conversation within a template. And you wrote back, well, that's kind of how I approached, you know, my data collection. And I thought that was so wonderful because I think that is the best way to get someone's story. If you, if you're too scripted, yes, it's easy to organize the data, but you might not collect all the data that you want to collect. So it's, I guess I question would have is, you know, moving on to your PhD, are you going to continue doing this type of data collection and, and are you, would you tweak it in a certain way to make it easier? Or is this just one of those things where you just got to grin and bear it? <laughs> um, so I, yeah, I'm not really sure. I think it's a little bit too early to say, to say just yet, but I definitely think that, um, I do want to continue with, uh, things like narrative, um, Maybe maybe go a little bit further towards Phil Hiver's approach with narrative identity, identity um, and things like that. Um, but I, I think the thing that I really liked about it is that it, rather than me as a researcher saying, "Okay, well, what was your motivation like?" You know, what you know, and kind of imposing these ideas. Okay, yes, your ideal. If you could imagine yourself in the future, your ideal self, like what would you imagine? Kind of looking at their interpretation, and you know, they. Their, how they experience it. And obviously you're not getting a 100% picture because it's someone's reflection on what they did, which may not necessarily be exactly how they experienced it in real time. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you are getting that reflection, the things that they paid attention to and the things that were important to them, which we can then maybe extrapolate and take out and use apply to other learners. Maybe after we're done recording, I can get the name of that Phil Hyper paper and we can put a link. Because yeah. I actually... I actually I don't think I've read that paper. I, um, gosh, Phil Hiver and Ali Alhori, they just published so much. Um, I can't believe <laughs> no. Phil Hiver's published a paper on narrative data collection. I thought he was more of the quantitative side. He's done, it was, uh, it was him. And I think a lot of his, maybe there are PhD students or other people in his department. Um, but they were, they, you know, that, I think that was what really got me really, really interested because, you know, Zoltan's very much kind of a survey. Uh, a lot of his old stuff is very like survey kind of stuff. And so that was what I had experience with. And I thought, okay, you know, but, but then I saw, oh, narrative identity. This is, this is stories are something that I'm very passionate about. I mean, I almost went into publishing, uh, <laughs> uh, trade publishing. Right. Um, and so I thought, you know, I think stories are how we interpret our lives. It's how we how we derive motivation, how we find a way to move forward um, based on our past experiences. So this was kind of something that I that I really like doing. Yeah, it's, inter it's interesting because there really is no easy way. You know, some people say, oh, you know, I don't want to do the quantitative stuff. You know, my eyes glaze over with the math. But then those <laughs> same people, when they do if I mean, if they approach a project even one one hundredth the size of this, they'll be confronted with the amount of data you have to sort through, right? And that's difficult too. There's really no easy way, I would say, you know, either side. Yeah. In a way, I think if if it had been any other year, I wouldn't have been able to do it. But because there was a pandemic and bless the UK government, I was getting paid 60% of my part-time job, which was marginally paying my bills. <laughs> <laughs> Like not quite, but you know, we we struggled through. But it meant that I had all of this time to just you know devote, God knows how many hours every week, um, 
you know, more than a full-time job to just this. And I don't think it would be feasible for, you know, anyone with any other kind of responsibilities to have done that. I think your PhD should be on analyzing how Zoltan Dornia can, can convince people to do these types of projects. <laughs> Honestly, I, I, I have to say, I, I think that, you know, he's, he's done a lot of really great research and motivation, but I think someone needs to do research on how he is such a motivating person because, you know, you, you go to a meeting with him thinking, oh, you know, I've made a mess of this. This is, you know, I have no idea what's happening. Everything is everywhere. There's 460,000 words, you know, how are we going to do this? And you come out thinking this is the greatest, you know, endeavor of my life. It's so fun. I'm really enjoying this. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, because the pitch for the book is, hey, why don't you write this book before your PhD? I mean, it sounds kind of insane from the outside looking in. Why, you know, writing a book before my PhD? Yeah. This is like a PhD. You're doing yeah. two PhDs, yeah. essentially. The, the running joke is that, well, I've done this now, so the PhD should be easy. I don't think it will be, but... <laughs> well, do you have an idea what your PhD is going to be on? Yeah, so the original kind of plan is to continue with multilingual motivation, the motivation to learn multiple languages. Okay. Um, so there's been a lot of really interesting work done on that, usually in relation to English and another language, um, but with this kind of global uh, global weighting of English, you know, that, that, that very much often ends up with the other language being kind of thrown under the bus, mm -hmm. shall we say. But that also means that we don't really know that much about what it's like to learn multiple languages at the same time that don't necessarily have that weighting, right? Because that, mm. that the global English kind of overshadows any other kind of interactions that, that we might get. When, um, when do you foresee uh, finishing your PhD? Um, should be 2020, wait, 2025? I think. Well, not, this 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 would be kind of fun. Maybe I can touch touch base with you in another three years. So, what what do you think you're going to be doing after you finish your PhD? You're going to be <laughs> you want to be professor or something? I would love to stay in academia. I don't know how feasible that is given the the current. Um, you know, everyone. There's a lot of problems right now, right? With. Uh, there not being enough jobs with, you know, the, a lot of jobs being kind of, oh, you know, you can teach for two hours and that's all we'll pay you for, um, kind of thing, especially in the UK. So while hey, you can always come back to Japan, lots of universities true. in Japan, if you're, if you're that's looking for a job, I, it's tempting. It's very tempting. I really, really love being in Japan, but one, that would mean that I'd have to continue studying Japanese. <laughs> I never learned to read properly because the, the kanji was was where I, you know, I thought, oh, this is this is this is a lot. Maybe I don't need to learn to read, which is ironic considering how much I love reading. Um, <laughs> so I have to go back and shore all of that up. I don't know if it's uh, if it's something that I, uh, I that I that I'm capable of doing, shall we say. I think you'll be able to do whatever you want. This is, I, I can't believe you wrote a book before you started your PhD. I just can't, I can't fathom it. Neither um, can I, to be fair. <laughs> I mean, because this isn't just like a simple sort of book. I mean, I mean, again, we, you talk about it in the beginning. It's 50 hours of recordings, corpus of 460,000 words, 30 exceptional language learners. And you went, you know, you did a whole chapter on theoretical background. Um, and then you're weaving in these stories, um, situating them with the research. 
it's just a massive, massive undertaking. I mean, how long does an does an individual chapter take to write? Um, surprisingly, a lot less time. And I think I'd like to also kind of emphasize that it takes a village. So you know, Zoltan was very much you know a co-author as well, and uh, you know, we we had these. 30 wonderful individuals who we could kind of go back and ask questions of who, you know, I think were very, very encouraging as well. Um, so it was, uh, you know, I think the data collection took the, took the vast majority. And by the time we'd done kind of that, the chapters fell into place. Well, that's good. That's good to hear. This doesn't always happen that way, right? No, well, I wouldn't know, but I assume not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it sounds like through, you know, through your interviews, then the, the narrative started to inform, you know, the path of, because I mean, this book, I mean, you hit so many different topics, right? I mean, I think you did a good job. I think I mentioned this to, in the Stephen Ryan interview. I thought when I read his book that he did with Dornier as well in 2015, it was just such a massive book as far as topics, but they did a good job of sort of skimming through it, right? They didn't get mm -hmm. bogged down. Um, and that's, I think that's a difficult thing to do, at least, you know, personally, when you're, when you're, there's so many different inter, you know, connected topics that are going on within this narrative. Uh, I would say it's this, and maybe, maybe that's a testament to Dornier because he was a co author of that book as well. Um, it very much is. He's very good at um, taking anyone's kind of, you know, foraging too far into the woods and taking it back out with the mushroom. <laughs> so can you, can you give us some insight on that? How, do, how does he do that exactly? Does he just say, okay, cut this section or does he actually give you some tangible advice that you can do it uh, on your own? I think it was very much, we sort of traded the drafts back and forth. Um, so, you know, he would write, say a draft and then I would edit it and then he would edit it and then I would edit it and then we'd kind of put it in. So it was, um, yeah, rather than feedback, we just kind of get in there and, and change what you want. And if you don't like the changes, you can change it back and then they can change it back if they want, which didn't happen, actually. Um, all of the changes, you know, anything I changed, he kept anything he changed. I was obviously happy to keep. Um, but yeah, it's it's just uh, a lot of iterations, I would say. So is he your supervisor now? Yes, uh, he and Christine Muir. No way. Wow. Well, yeah. you're in good hands. Yeah, it's wonderful to be under such incredible people, and they're they're so nice. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's a very lucky feeling. Well, um, let's 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 just jump into maybe a few topics. Obviously, we don't have time to go through the whole book. And again, the book is lessons from exceptional language learners who have achieved native-like proficiency, motivation, cognition, and identity. I guess let me ask you, what was your favorite chapter? It's a it's a difficult question. Um, I think I think my favorite chapter was probably the uh, chapter eleven, second language competence, comfort, and ownership. It mm -hmm. kind of bleeds into chapter twelve a bit with who have they become. Mm -hmm. But I think going through the interviews and talking with the people that was that was one of my favorite parts to hear about sort of how they interpreted themselves, their identity, and their relationship with their languages. Yeah, my favorite chapter was twelve. Who have they become? Um, and this ties into some previous conversations that I've had one recently with like Ali Al-Hori. I don't think that episode's been posted yet, but he was 
talking about the fundamental difference hypothesis with language learning and how he was trying to prove that it's, you know, it's not really a valid hypothesis. And he was talking about this, the idea about, you know, when, again, connected to the, the, um, the critical sensitive period hypothesis, you know, when you're a child, it's easier to learn languages because you're adding to your identity. But when you're older trying to learn languages, you know, you're subtracting from your identity or if you're going to assimilate you somehow some, anyway, a lot of those themes, I'm really interested in that because I'm wondering if that's a debilitating factor with me learning Japanese. Mm-hmm. So you, you talked about that a lot in chapter 12. And I think, you know, even th- there was a, there was a story of a, a woman, I don't know if she was Russian or she spoke Russian where she was, I think you asked her about her identity and she's like, oh, I'm a bit of a mess. <laughs> but in a good way or something, right? So I was, you know, because I'm always wondering, like these people that are juggling two to three languages, it has to affect your identity, right? It, don't you think? Uh, I mean, definitely. Well, there's always an exception to the rule, but uh, in my personal experience and in a lot of the experiences of our participants, uh, definitely. But I think the thing that we th- that we have to remember is that is identity really a, uh, is it a static thing or is it something that we constantly rewrite and write and rewrite over and over again mm. every day, every minute as we, you know, think about our experiences, um, you know, looking back on, on my past, right. We could say, oh, well, yeah, I was always lin- interested in languages and, you know, it's clear that I was going to, you know, go into applied linguistics, but in fact, you know, I could have very much easily been a physicist like I wanted to be in seventh grade, or I could have been a, a publisher, um, so the, you know, you learn a language and you get these, these new identities that come in, but it's, it's not necessarily any different from a lot of other, our other endeavors in life. Yeah. But the flip side of the argument is that someone who is looking to, you know, learn three languages maybe has an identity of, of, of an evolving identity. Yes, yes, definitely. Especially if they're trying to do them at the same time. It's, uh, that's something that I'm really interested in because, you know, you have this idea of, okay, well, if you have this very strong identity of, oh, I want to learn, you know, Italian and, you know, I see myself living in Italy, you can't quite see yourself living in Italy and see yourself living in Japan or in Spain or Finland or wherever you want to, what other languages you want to learn. So it, it definitely complicates uh, language learning. But I think that, you know, some of the, some of the participants here were, you know, learned their language at the same time. And, you know, for example, Colin became a native, like in two languages that he had learned at the same time. So it's not that it's impossible. It's not that multilingual learning, uh, puts you at a step back rather. Mm. Yeah. I think one interview I'd, I'd recommend to people is, um, citation 44 with, uh, the valet. Um, I don't know if Diwale was cited so much in this book, but a couple topics. One thing with Diwale, I think he was talking about social IQ. I think it was social IQ. And he was saying that, you know, you're born with a certain personality, right? And you can't – that's like your IQ. And whatever that is, that's what it is. And he and I, and I thought that can't be. And I was, And I was kind of like going back and forth with him. And then another topic that came up in the book, we don't have to get deep into it, but – this idea of the native speaker or non-native speaker, right? And uh, yes. and I didn't even know that was sort of a debate. Now I do, and I think the the I think the PC term is LX or something. Um, but again, the the compliment is you both of you did a good job of navigating these murky waters um, 
I don't know murky is the right word, but <laughs> you, you even sort of acknowledged, I think, in the book that, you know, you wandered into a few minefields, right? You're, you're, it's like, oh, we didn't mean to touch that one. We're just, you know, kind of just don't mind us. We're kind of just, we're, <laughs> we're collecting. just exploring, you know, like talented people. Yeah, no, it's a, it is a, it's a messy topic. And I think, um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of questions in terms of, you know, what will happen in the future. Um, with, with these terms and this distinction of native and non-native, what was kind of really uh, important for our book was that, you know, we have, when we talk of the native speaker, there's, uh, I think Davies in 2003 was like, uh, he said that there's the myth and the reality. Hmm. And so there's the reality of, you know, we all have, we all have a certain understanding of our language with all of its different linguistic permutations. And, you know, it's, there isn't a single one linguistic standard. And then you have the myth, which is that a native speaker is someone who's born and raised and they know the language perfectly. And, you know, the, they are the, the, the ultimate, you know, protectors of, of this perfect language, um, which is very much a myth. Um, but when we talk about the native speaker, we don't know what, you know, which one people are talking about. And also it's been misused a lot, particularly mm. hiring practices of teachers. Sure. Yeah. Um, and so then, you know, you can understand why you might want to change these so that we don't have, we aren't setting anyone up against anyone else. And we have L1 and LX. But at the same time, um, there's you you run this risk of further um, separating us from the people that we want to help. Right. You know, if you talk to any of my participants and, you know, I did ask them, I said, hey, you know, have you heard about this non-native and native speaker distinction and the, you know, all of this uh, controversy behind it? And, they, and none of them, all of them were like, what, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> well, not all of them, because some of them are in the field. Um, but most of them were like, no, I've never heard of this. And, you know, the moment you change terminology, you're, you're risking to alienating uh, the people that you that you want to help. So, well, And that's why it gets murky. You, you nailed it. As far as, you know, questionable hiring practices for teachers or prejudice, then it's 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 abhorrent. Right. Um, so that's why like, you can have two conversations at the same time. Um so it was cool. I mean, I do like reading and I'm trying to incorporate this in my own writing where, uh, okay, I'm not writing about this. You know, you really make it clear what you're not writing about. I think it's a really good strategy. Um, <laughs> this is my aim. You know, one way to really clarify your aim is to talk about what you're not doing. Um, and you did that. You did that well. I mean, you acknowledged there was minefields that you were going to be walking through. And then you also acknowledged that you weren't going to be spending too much time when you hit the minefield, right? <laughs> I wouldn't say that. <laughs> I think I think we didn't step on any mines. Um, perhaps that's naive of me, but um, no, of course, you know, yeah, yeah, very I was... done with the idea that you know humans do differentiate. We do categorize. You know, it's. Uh, I think it's kind of a similar thing with race, right? You know, you can say that okay, I'm brown and someone else is white. Uh, what you do with that information is another story, right? So, but the distinction still exists. Absolutely, I, I, I totally agree. Um, what were maybe just a couple more questions here? I don't want to take too much more of your time. What were some of your favorite stories during the data collection? Oh, that's like choosing your favorite child. <laughs> or just give just give a couple te a couple teases, and then uh, people can go out and read the book and and read the rest. 
Yeah, okay. Um, so I think one of the most uh, interesting stories was uh, not, well, they're all interesting, but one of the most unique stories is probably Christopher's. So he learned Mandarin, not, so he, he's basically almost never touched a textbook in his life uh, of languages. Uh, I think just once. Is this said. the professor of Japanese literature? Yes, yes, okay. he is. Maybe you can meet up with him. <laughs> so yeah, he he learned Mandarin uh, from some some neighbors, essentially, just going there and listening to them um, to a native-like extent. And then later on in his life, he also learned Japanese very much the same way, you know, hanging out with some, some elderly people and just spending time with them and listening. And I think coming from from my perspective where, you know, I, I learn everything, you know, grammar is important to me and I spend a lot of time thinking about it. Uh, it was very interesting to, to kind of see this guy who just kind of gone out and done it, you know, just, uh, that was, he did. And it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't difficult. Right. Um, yeah, that's really hard to believe. That's just so hard to believe. (laughs) I mean, I, I don't, I, I'm not saying he's lying. It's just, that's Chris, just, impossible to think of yeah yeah no it's it's definitely uh it's it's very very crazy there was another uh woman uh carrie uh from canada who went to italy uh and and learned learned italian and her story was really interesting because um the thing with being mistaken for a native speaker is that you also have to kind of look like a native speaker because otherwise people don't expect it from you Mm. so then they think oh like this person is and so then there's this disconnect Um, and so she, uh, apparently doesn't look very Italian. And so she experienced this all the time, but then over the phone, people would, you know, very much, uh, mistake her for a native speaker. And then they'd come and meet her in real life and be like, you can't be Carrie. (laughs) (laughs) I think that was a Seinfeld episode. Oh, really? (laughs) So so there was a, I think there was the woman with a Chinese name and, and then George's mother was talking to her on the phone. And then she met her in person and it was just this, this white woman with blonde hair. And then she got really <laughs> angry and then, and then said, Oh, I, I can't take this woman's advice. She's not Chinese. It was <laughs> <laughs> well, did you grow up watching Seinfeld? I guess, is that, was, is that in your, uh, is that in your repertoire of shows or is that, is that, am I, am I? I didn't really watch TV growing up. That's probably for the best. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> just yeah, listening to K-pop secretly. Wow. Um, all right. I guess my favorite story, and it's funny that you said this woman, Capucine. So she, Capucine, just she was involved in the book. I didn't know that. Um, there's this story about how she had this teacher who really tried to, she was really strict about people making fun of other people's accents. Yeah. Um, And I thought that was really interesting. Um, because yeah, it kind of, it was funny, I guess be, this kind of shows maybe the weaknesses of, of my own language learning and maybe why I'm not so good at languages. I, re- I was reading the, the chapter on pronunciation, right? Mm-hmm. And I thought, geez, they're spending so much time on pronunciation. Why are they doing that? And then I realized, oh, I guess I should probably spend more time on my pronunciation. <laughs> maybe that's well, the problem here <laughs> with my own Japanese. Really- because it, it, it's kind of a two-pronged thing because one, pronunciation is obviously really important for being mistaken for a – or being taken for a native-like speaker, for a native speaker, right? Um, because, you you know, you could have perfect grammar, perfect everything, but if your pronunciation is, you know, in any way divergent, 
you know, people will identify you as a, as a non-native speaker, to, so to speak. Um, but then the other thing that we found was that pronunciation was also very much tied to motivation and tied to identity in this way that, um, you know, when you are good at pronunciation or when you do spend that time, you get you tend to get more credit. Um, mm. And I think this was very much um, talked about in Peng and Shinhe's story, uh, stories in that they, you know, they got more credit and so they worked on it. And so that kind of positive feedback of, oh, you must be good at languages makes you then believe that you're good at languages and kind of improves your motivation to keep on going. Mm. Um, and I think there's uh, another one of Zoltan's previous um PhD students, Dominique, did their PhD on shame. Uh, and it was about shame in French students. And it was very much tied to pronunciation um, because, you know, they thought, oh, well, my, my my accent is, you know, not not great. And so then I don't want to, I don't want, like, I don't want to, I don't like learning, uh, insert language here, et cetera. And so I think we we ignore pronunciation because it isn't necessary for communication. And that, that's very true. But the other thing, on the other hand, a lot of uh, attitudes are affected by pronunciation. Yeah, there, there's, there's a my boss actually. Um, he's the best bilingual speaker I ever met. He's um, so he. I don't think he would qualify for this book because his mother's Japanese. Um, but he he moved to America when he was three, mm-hmm. and then he went to UVA, studied biology, came back to Japan. His family's from like Miyazaki. Um, so by the time I, I had met him, he had been living in Japan for a while. Um, and I, I'd only communicated with him in English and his English was, you know, as, as good or better than mine. And then he said, oh yeah, for your, your interview, this was before my interview for the job I have now. He says, yeah, for your interview, you're going to have a, have a translator there for your interpreter, um, for your interview, right. To help. And then I show up at the, the job interview and he said, ah, oh, the guy got sick. So I, I'll just do it. And I said, and then I got really nervous. I was like, what? <laughs> What's happening? Yeah. And then we get in this interview and then he just, it's just, it was just insane. I'd never seen anything like it. And then even, even, even I've been working with him for about four years, just his ability to switch uh, mm-hmm. so fast with no, no. And then I, I started to watch him and I, and I, it's another topic in the book. He talked about mimicry and musicality. I noticed he's really good at accents. So he might not be great at Spanish, but he can he could speak Spanish and kind of trick you with his, his accent, how good it is. And he's just good at mimicking people's voices. So he's good at language, but he's also good at pronunciation. So he can, it's really good. He's really good at that. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. And I think we go into this a lot in the book, both in like the pronunciation chapter and in the conclusions, but, uh, you know, mimicry and, uh, having a good ear, um, whatever that might mean, uh, for future research. There's a lot of, there's a lot of space, um, for, for more research to be done in, you know, what that actually, uh, means for language learning and how, how that can be beneficial, because I think it is a very important, but overlooked topic. All right. Well, we could talk a lot more, but um, I really encourage people to go out and buy the book. The name of the book is Lessons from Exceptional Language Learners Who Have Achieved Native-Like Proficiency, Motivation, Cognition, and Identity. And then there's the companion book, which is going to be released at the same time, or is that going to be released later on? It should be released at the same time. So uh, we might release this podcast, you know, a few months before the book's out, uh, but we'll definitely keep people informed about it. And um, I have a relationship with uh, Multilingual Matters as well. So I know some of the 
such a nice do you do you get do you meet have you met those people they're just so nice they're so sweet every every kind of communication we've had with them has been so positive they're amazing all my favorite books on language learning are seem to be published by them so i'm a, <laughs> I'm a big fan of theirs and um i don't know the 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 series the the psychology of language learning series co-edited by uh Stephen ryan and sarah mercer yeah. um they publish that series as well so it's a really, really cool publisher. I actually follow them online. They kind of post post these cute pictures every Friday. They're like, "Oh, this is a uh, this is Flo in the park eating a sandwich." <laughs> it just seems kind of a, like a, uh, they're very much a family publisher, but they do some. It's it's incredible how much how much work they do and how many books they publish. So, do they have their, their eye on you? I'm, I'm sure they would like you to come work for them in some capacity. <laughs> You know, if academia doesn't work out, maybe I'll I'll uh, send them a message. <laughs> right. Okay. Anything else to add? Um, thank you so much for having me. It's been really a uh, wonderful speaking with you, and uh, I hope that anyone who reads the book uh, enjoys it. And you know, if anyone has any questions, you know where to find me. <laughs> well, you sound like an up and coming star. So um, I guess in like you know five ten years when you're a superstar, maybe we can get you back on Lost in Citations. <laughs> you're too kind. <laughs> All right. So Katerina Menzelopoulos, thank you so much for coming on Lost in Citations. Thank you, Jonathan. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.